What if everything you thought you knew about the criminal justice system and high-profile criminal cases wasn't true? What if the mainstream media was too corrupt and compromised to tell you about? Join a veteran Buffalo City detective, a veteran Canadian Pacific police captain, and a veteran Naval Criminal Investigative Service special agent as they dissect the criminal justice system and high-profile criminal cases from their perspective in an unvarnished podcast. It's Search Warrant, coming right at you. Welcome to uh, Search Warrant. This is uh, John Snedden, Anna Midlars, and uh, Tom Purcell. Uh, we have with us Ralph Cipriano, writer for uh, Big Trial Philadelphia, who also previously wrote for uh, Los Angeles Times and the Philadelphia Inquirer. Who even reads that anymore, actually? He also writes for Newsweek and Law Enforcement Today, but the uh, most of his incredibly hard-hitting articles that uh, we've had an opportunity to review are on Big Trial Philadelphia. Today, we're going to examine the Penn State case, and we have a special guest, Mr. Anthony Lebrano. Anthony Lebrano is an alumni elected trustee, elect to the Penn State Board of Trustees, having previously served two terms from 2012 to 2018, and he begins his new term on July 1st. He has often been referred to in the media as an outspoken critic of the Penn State Board of Trustees as a result of his willingness to publicly challenge the decision-making of the board dating back to its handling of the Sandusky matter. Mr. Lebrano, along with six other alumni elected trustees, successfully sued Penn State in April 2015 to gain access to the source materials relied upon by Louis Free to produce his July 12, 2012 report in which he excoriated the university, its former leaders, and its culture. Anthony is a 1982 graduate of Penn State with a degree in accounting. His lead gift of $2.5 million led to the construction of Medlar Field at Lebrano Park in 2005, a 5,570-seat baseball stadium on the Penn State campus. Anthony, welcome to Search Warrant. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you, particularly the uh, perspective you've had since uh, since this whole uh, disaster started. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Again, as I mentioned, uh, we have Anna, as well as Tom, and we have Ralph Cipriano. He's put out some uh, incredible stories relative to the Penn State case, in case you haven't uh, had an opportunity to see those. I would say anybody that's uh, listening to us, obviously, you want to you wanna get to that uh, big trial, Philadelphia. It's bigtrial.net, John. Uh, right, bigtrial.net. If you if you Google Big Trial Philadelphia, um, you should get to uh, bigtrial.net. Anthony, again, we really appreciate you taking the time to to be with us today to clear up a lot of the things that uh, a lot of people are working under uh, false uh, information, and uh, we really want to get the uh, the actual facts out there to people. Um, Ralph, with your with your knowledge of this case, do you have questions in regard to uh, for for Anthony? Well, I think we all do. Hi, Anthony. A pleasure to see you again. It's been a while. Yeah, it is. I think I ran into you at the um, Spaniard trial, right? 
That's exactly right. Good memory, Ralph. Franco with Franco. Uh, so uh, Franco's hard to miss. Anthony, there's so many questions all of us want to ask you. I, I'm, um, I saw on one of the message boards that you were, um, you had a resolution up there to recoup uh, Penn State's substantial investment of 8.3 million uh, that they spent or wasted on the Lewis Free Report. And I, I'd love to hear you explain uh, why you're taking that particular tag. Well, Ralph, I've been contemplating this resolution for quite some time. Uh, as you know, along with six other trustees, I, I was forced to sue the university to gain access up to the materials that Louis Free purportedly relied upon to issue his, what I call a fact-free report. Uh, <laughs> I, and it's, it saddens me to say that we were forced to sue the university because the university was unwilling to share that information with us in a meaningful way they wanted to redact the information before letting us see it, and that was just unacceptable. And as we we conducted our review, it became clear to us, had we accepted that term, we would have ended up with uh, essentially worthless uh, information. But having spent all of the time and energy that I, I have over the better part of uh, two and a half years reviewing documents, uh, and having had the benefit of conversations with countless number of members of the university community, it it just seems to me that uh, that the board of trustees breached its duty by by not seeking restitution from free for a report that was entirely baseless, and and you know when apparently someone leaked the report that that we provided to the university. My, my last day as a trustee in 2018, we, uh, we called a special meeting of the board. And, uh, and as we expected, a majority of the board didn't attend. However, we still went forward with that meeting and presented our report to the university. And, um, and the university should have acted on, on that report. I can't speak to specifics except to tell you that university apparently uh, verified the report by virtue of the statement that they made when asked about the report. They called the work we did unauthorized, which is rather funny to me. I'm a due process guy. My involvement in this has been all about due process, whether it be uh, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky, uh, Tim Curley, Graham Spanier, Gary Schultz, uh, I think each and every one of us is entitled to due process, and we should all be concerned when our due process rights are violated. And in, in this matter, it was clear that due process rights were violated. And when I looked at the Pennsylvania Nonprofit Corporation Law or Act, it, there's a, a provision that, that uh, provides for fiduciaries, trustees, to verify the veracity of information they're given so that the fox isn't guarding the hen house, so to speak. And when Free issued his report, July 12, 2012, which, by the way, was my very first board meeting, um, Free, Free, of course, made his presentation in Philadelphia. 
And um, and I'll give you a little background on that in just a moment. But he, he made that presentation in Philadelphia, and our board meeting was held in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And as a board, it, it seemed to me we had a, a duty not to patently accept the findings of the report, but rather to verify the veracity of the information contained therein. And we chose not to do that. And, and to me, that will always be a breach of our duty because but not only did we, we end up paying Louis Free more than $8.3 million, a number which, by the way, you can, you can, you can uh, obtain by reading footnotes in the, the financial statements. They're buried along with the, the other costs of this entire affair. But not just because of the $8.3 million we paid, but because of the damage to our reputation as an institution. And, and I've been thinking about this for some time. I actually forwarded that resolution, which I've made public recently. I forwarded it at the time that we made our report to the board. Um, I'm told subsequent to that report having been made to the board uh, that uh, the board had a, uh, a discussion among, among its members with respect to the report that we made. I think that they limited the discussion to about an hour, and that was the extent of it. Um, but I, I just, you know, having not been party to that discussion, not really knowing what was discussed during that hour or so, uh, I know that they didn't move forward with a resolution. And I, I think as an institution, we have a responsibility, not just to Pennsylvania, the Penn State community, but to the taxpayers of Pennsylvania, because we have to remember it's a public institution. So. That's a long answer to your very simple question, you know, why did I do this? Um, I, I don't know when I'll be offering that resolution, Ralph, but I, what I wanted to do was to put it out into the public sphere to get feedback. And I must tell you, I, I was shocked, completely shocked at the level of response I received. I, I've posted in social media many times over the past, oh gosh, now almost eight years. And, and never have I had the level of response that I had to this resolution. Never. I mean, and in it, and it's exponential. I, I actually thought, because people grow tired of, of this over time, you would expect, I actually thought folks had grown tired, particularly of, of the report, and they really didn't want to talk about it. I was completely wrong. This topic is still at the top of the, the agenda for many, many Pennsylvania a resident, certainly for the community and, and the alumni. And, and so now it's a question of how I, I make that resolution, when I make that resolution. We, of course, have some other pressing issues right now, as you well know, with the pandemic, certainly social unrest that's going on. But, uh, but there will be a moment, and, and it's likely you will see that resolution attempted anyway at some point in the not-too-distant future. Anthony, um, I'm... There's there's so many astonishing things that you just said. I mean, I it, I had forgotten that seven members of the duly elected members of the Penn State Board of Trustees had to go to court to see these documents that should have been made public a long time ago. I just find that mind boggling. And in my opinion, I mean, well, if, I'm sure. Are you familiar with the insurance case where? Penn State's own insurance carriers sued the university because they were upset about the large amounts of money that they were paying to uh, all of these so-called victims in this case. 
Are you familiar with that at all, Anthony? Uh, Ralph, I, I am familiar with every element of it, yes. Okay. Well, then, in my mind, what we've got here is an organized cover-up that's been going on for eight years. Because when they brought Karen Peets, the president of the board, in to be deposed in that insurance case, which I hope you've, you're probably way more familiar with it than I am, when she gave her deposition in 2015, they asked her what she thought of the free report, and she just ripped it. She said, we expected facts, we got opinions, we got editorializing. Uh, he was way off base on a bunch of the things he said. And then they asked her two questions. Uh, well, why didn't you say anything about it? And she basically, in my mind, confessed to organizing a cover-up, saying, well, we all decided that nothing positive was going to come out of this to publicly criticize the free report, so we all decided not to say anything. I mean, I couldn't believe that. Well, so, Ralph, let me, let me interrupt you. Go ahead. Let, let me take your listeners back to the day that the report was issued. Because there's there's a, a fascinating dynamic that was going on that day. Now I'm I'm accustomed to media. I, I certainly haven't shied away from media over my my lifetime. But that day, I I dare say I was overwhelmed by the numbers of media who were in attendance at the meet, the meeting. So that morning, Louis Free conveniently simply issued his executive summary, and right. his and his system went down so that we couldn't get the report. Now, I'm a board member. Thursday, the, the day that the, the report was, uh, was to be issued by free, uh, we are called into session in the morning. I think it was at uh, 7.38 a.m. in the morning. And, uh, and, and we're talking about the plan for the day. Free's gonna issue his report. We'll all go back to our rooms. A copy of his report will be provided to us. We'll have an opportunity to review the report. And then we'll go over to, to uh, a neighboring facility that was large enough to accommodate all of us, and we'll dissect this report. Well, Free issues that report. And we're watching this in our rooms on television. We don't get the report until close to 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning. You and got a speech. You got a speech, we, right? Well, no, 10, 30... Well, no, when I say we didn't get the report, we as individual trustees are in our rooms awaiting copies of the report to be delivered to each of us. Okay. We don't get that report. We're watching free on television. Finally, 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning, my copy shows up. And, and I had barely an hour to review 247 pages. Impossible. Mm -hmm. Now, I've already listened to free castigate the institution and, and its, its leaders. So I'm still a bit shell-shocked, quite frankly. I get the report and I start to read the report and I don't have the benefit of the executive summary at this point. He's read that executive summary, but they as a, they as a board, Karen Peets and Keith Moss was the vice chair, they haven't disseminated, distributed a copy of the executive summary. So at that point, we, we don't really understand the, the true disconnect between what he says in his executive summary versus the actual report, because he can't substantiate what he says. So we then hop on a shuttle to go over to this other facility, and we get into a room, and uh, it, it, was, it was really surreal because there were throngs of media there already. Throngs. Free has the, the, the uh, he has his press conference at 9 a.m., and by 10.30, they're all gone, and they're heading up to Scranton to us. 
So by 12 o'clock, it's packed, absolutely packed. And I'll never forget Susan Candiotti of CNN walking up to me and asking me what I, I think of the report. And I, and I tell her, Susan, I haven't had a chance to review the report, so I think it would be irresponsible for me to comment. And she looks at me rather incredulously and, and then asks, well, well, what do you think this does to Joe Paterno's legacy? And I stopped and I looked at her and I said, as far as I'm concerned, nothing. And I continue to walk. And we walked inside and, and we're having the conversation. And it was clear that, that people on that board had already seen that report. They had already prepared a response. Now, remember, Penn State's Board of Trustees is being represented by none other than Lanny Davis, right? He, he's the king of that. That will depend on what your definition of the word is, is the Bill Clinton era. And, and Lanny Davis and his team are working on our response. And we're in the response, we, we make reference to Joe Paterno, and immediately people want us to remove that reference. Now, we haven't had a trial for, on anything yet. The due process was out the door. When I walked into that room, Ira Lubert looked at me, and he asked me, so what do you think of your guys now? Referring to Paterno, Curley, and Schultz. I was completely shell-shocked. Now, here's, here's the one regret that I have from that day. The one regret, and I do have a regret. I then watched Karen Peets, Rod Erickson, the university president at the time, and Ken Frazier, CEO, chairman and CEO of Merck, walk in to face the media. And I mean, there were more people there. It was like a Super Bowl. And I remember them accepting responsibility. We hadn't even, as a board, discussed it. That, to me, is, is a breach at the highest level. And my one regret is that when they finished, I didn't stop, walk up front, and say, oh, wait a second, hold on a second. I have a different position. I'm a trustee, just like Karen Peets, and just like Ken Frazier, and just like Rod Erickson. My position is different. We, as a board, have not reviewed this, let alone discussed it, for them to be taking responsibility on, on behalf of the institution. I regret that. I truly do regret that. But having said that, from that moment forward, we were moving on because this was about money. This was about putting this behind us as quickly as we could. We didn't care about the truth, and we certainly didn't care about due process. You make reference to Karen Pete's deposition in the, in the insurance litigation. You should also look at, at uh, the depositions that were taken in the uh, uh, Corman case against the NCAA, because in, in that case, you have people like general counsel at Penn State, Steve Dunham, saying essentially the same thing about the free report. You, you, have, you have a whole host of, of folks who dismiss the free report as, as trash. In fact, you have Louis Free under oath, not once, but twice in two separate depositions. When asked about saying, well, that was simply my opinion. Now, I don't know about you, but that day when Louis Free castigated this university, he did so in such a forceful way, one had to believe he had some basis for which to do it. But in fact, according to Free, those were simply his opinions. So here we are today, how many years later, after Karen Pete said this will be a distant memory, and I have you folks asking me questions. Fascinating. Anthony, do you uh, do you think that, I mean, uh, in my opinion, I'm looking at an organized 
cover up by the board of trustees that continues to this day. Well, look, look, I, I, I wouldn't say organized. Okay. Let's let's be clear about this. There were only a there. It, it, it was clear to me early on that m most people on this board were, frankly, did not take their duties as seriously as I did. They didn't believe they had a duty to verify the veracity of anything they were told. And they certainly weren't interested in involving themselves in such a politically correct uh, uh, challenge. Because this was, a, this was a challenge, right? From the moment that, in, that indictment was leaked, it, it has posed a problem for the university, for the defendants. I mean, it, I listened to John Zimmerman's interview you did not, re, not too long ago, and, and, and there's definitely a playbook. I, I like John Zimmerman, was, was uh, led to believe in my lifetime that, that the guys in blue were, were good people and the justice system was fair. Well, the guys in blue are good people, the rule, but the justice system isn't about justice. It's a legal system. I never realized some 90, 95% of people take pleas, so they never get their day in court. And in this case, if you didn't have the, the, the backing, the financial backing of Penn State, you, you could never have taken those misdemeanor pleas. You would have been in jail for, for probably some of the felony charges, even though these guys weren't guilty of anything. You know, I, I take the position that Spanier, Curley, and Schultz weren't guilty of anything. That the presentment was intentionally misleading. I call that prosecutorial misconduct. They knew when they wrote it that McQuarrie didn't tell them what they represented. That's a fact. That is absolutely a fact. Well, McQuarrie told them that, didn't he? Put it he, right? he put it in an email, absolutely. And moreover, they charged Curley and Schultz, my belief, that they charge them because they don't want them testifying in the Sandusky trial. And oh, by the way, Sandusky goes to trial in six months. That's just a little too convenient for me. And now, of course, knowing more about the folks in the office of the attorney general at the time, it's clear to me that they were not about the truth. They were not about justice. This was about getting a conviction. And in this case, now, of course, you know, years later and, and, as uh, as friends like to say, uh, the, uh, the the feces is already out of the horse. How do you get it back in? <laughs> um, sure. it, it, another amazing moment in the Karen Peets insurance deposition in 2015. They asked her if she knew if the free report was going to be used as the basis for the sanctions against yeah. Penn State, and she said she had no idea until and, she. Read and and that's and I'm sure that's true. And and let me let me uh, elaborate. clear to me that the bylaws precluded the president of the university from acting as he did to accept that consent decree. It's clear to me. Um, it imposed a $60 million penalty on the university. The university president at the time didn't have the authority to spend, I think, more than a million or $2 million. So here's what he did. He convened the executive committee vis-a-vis -a, -vis a phone call, and I believe it was on a, a Saturday night, Saturday before the consent decree was announced that Monday. I think that was January, I mean, uh, July 20, 20th or 21st, somewhere in there. And, uh, and he convenes them via teleconference, and he asks for their opinion. Now, that may sound rather innocuous, except that first, 
you can't have a meeting like that unless it's it's called for publicly <laughs> because the Sunshine Act precludes them from having those kinds of conversations, and it certainly precludes them from deliberating privately. So he has the conversation, and essentially they say to him, hey, you got to do what you think is right, Rod. So Rod signs the consent decree. But I'm not sure, quite frankly, how many of them truly understood that the free report was going to be used as the hammer. And, and oh, by the way, um, that, that report did what the NCAA needed it to do in order for the NCAA to, to inject itself. That report charged Penn State with violation of institutional control. And, and so this takes me all the way back to the beginning. And the reason that my antenna went up in the very beginning, um, your guests should know, John, that I had no interest, none, in the governance of Penn State prior to November 2011. I had no interest, zero. I didn't know who, how large the board was. I didn't know who was on the board. I didn't know how you became a board member. And I could care less. But November 2011, I'm watching the press conference and I see John Surma and the hair in the back of my neck went up and I, and I listened to him talk about how they fired Joe Paterno over the phone. And, yeah. I, went, and I was irate, <clears throat> completely irate. And, and that, that began my involvement in this whole Penn State affair because I, I thought, I believed, I come from a lower middle class family. My father was a blue collar worker. My mother, largely a housewife. I believe you work hard, you take advantage of your opportunities, and, and you, you're decent to other people. I saw a man who gave us 61 years, treated like, like literally feces on the bottom of somebody's shoe, and they were trying to clean it off. And they, they made a phone call to him and told him, you're out. You're done. And I thought, this is wrong. But if they could do it to him, they could do it to anyone. And now, if the, if the Office of the Attorney General can act the way it does, to these people, we stand no chance. And, and fundamentally, that's just wrong. So, you know, Ralph, back to your point, Pete's didn't know. I honestly don't believe that many of them understood. I think for so many of them, this was way over their pay grade. There is one person, however, who understood grand juries better than anyone else, and that would be Ken Frazier. Ken Frazier, Ken Frazier knew, he understood. In fact, a little tidbit for you that's not well known, though I have posted in social media, I received an anonymous package back in, oh, I want to say it was 2000 and. I don't know, 14, 13, 14, 15, I can't remember now. And in the, the package were a number of communications. Your guests should know that when this affair happened in 2011 and I, I be, became so outspoken um, and then decided to run for trustee that, uh, that the bad guys led by Lanny Davis and other members of the board um, tried, to, uh, tried to attack me in the media. And in April of 2012, prior to the completion of the election, 
The Philadelphia Choir ran a story one Sunday morning above the fold that read, um, uh, polarizing figure emerges an otherwise quiet trustees race. And it was a smear against me, the entire story. Jeez. Horrible, absolutely horrible. And it was horrible because it brought in some, some personal elements associated with my divorce at the time. And, um, and so I received from this anonymous person, right? And again, it was in this yellow envelope, no return address. I received a number of email communications that pertained to, um, to that, that whole affair, my smear. And so I got a handle on, on who orchestrated it. And unfortunately, somebody who I had some respect for prior uh, was prominently figured in this a guy named Ken Frazier. Well, Ken Frazier also communicated with Cynthia Baldwin back in November of 2011. And, and he, he wrote her and he, and this was unsolicited, by the way, unsolicited. It was the Sunday after the leak. The leak of the presentment occurred on a Friday and it was Sunday in the morning and Frazier's writing her and, and he's telling her essentially, we shouldn't conduct a separate investigation. Oh, brother. He's telling her that, and he's telling her that based on his experience with Vioxx. So this is a man who, who understood that this wasn't in our best interest as an institution. His advice to her was, let the criminal investigation run its course, and then we'll deal with the fallout. That was great advice. And she responds, essentially, that she agrees, and she's trying to get other people to agree as well. But of course, that doesn't happen. And Frazier becomes the chairman of the investigative task force that engages Louis Free and conducts the, the fact-free investigation and renders a report that serves as a hammer for the NCAA. And here we are today still talking about it. In regard to uh, Free being uh, the individual that uh, conducted this uh, alleged independent inquiry, um, what are your thoughts in regard to the uh, his connection and his desire to be part of the uh, become a uh, independent contracting investigative entity for the NCAA? Well, there's no doubt that um, that Free had had profit motives here. Uh, he was, as I learned early on, uh, and I say early prior to joining the board, I learned that uh, that that Free's connection to some Penn State folks was, in my mind, a, a conflict. Um, you know, we, we've listened to former Governor Corbett talk about how he's the guy responsible for hiring free. The fact is that um, there were some other people who were involved in, in the hiring of free. And, and, and when they first contacted free, it wasn't to help Penn State. You know, the first contact was to help the second mile. But but Free and his team wanted nothing to do with the nonprofit because they couldn't pay. Right? They they wanted Penn State because we had deep pockets. And and then of course, never wanted to let a let a a crisis pass by. Um, Free and his people saw an opportunity to feather their nest with the NCAA, and um, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that in fact that report was written in such a way that allowed uh, allowed free to curry favor with the NCAA by serving as a hammer 
for the NCAA to to, uh, to cite Penn State for its what they called institutional failures. Um, and again, here's some color to add. So again, b- before I'm a member of the board, I'm I'm contacted by by some people who are being interviewed by Freeze team, and they're all telling me the same thing. They're they're telling me that Freeze not asking about Jerry Sandusky. What Free wants to know is he wants to know about the the uh, the, the the power at Penn State, you know, Paterno and Spanier and Curley and and um, you know how do they interact? Does does Spanier go to Paterno's office for for meetings? Um, does, oh, does, does, does Curley, you know, does, oh. does Curley take direction from Paterno? Th- those sorts of questions, and they were all scratching their head. Well, in retrospect. It's clear the reason they were asking those questions is that in order to find violation of institutional control, you have to establish that that uh, that in fact the president isn't in charge. And if you read the report carefully, there's a footnote in Freeze fact-free report. I don't recall what page now, but it makes reference to a high-ranking Penn State official refers to Tim Curley as Joe Paterno's errand boy. I think those are the exact words. A high-ranking Penn State official. So now you are a reader of that report, and you read that, and you think, wow, that's pretty damning. And now, I will tell you, the person who made that statement had absolutely no firsthand knowledge of the relationship between Joe Paterno and Tim Curley. None. And in fact, that person in deposition, in fact, the deposition of Corman, when asked about that comment, said he doesn't recollect ever making that comment. So... You, you know, it, it's you, we started with my resolution, Ralph and, and John, and um, I just I really do believe as a board we breached our duty. They will never acknowledge that they breached their duty because that would be a bad thing. I think it would actually be a good thing for us to stand up and say, you know what, we, we messed up. We're sorry and move forward. We can't as an institution heal until we acknowledge some of those mistakes that were made. Um, but, you know, I still have on the board presently uh, two members who are part of the group that that fired Joe in 2011. I have the guy who's the chairman presently, Mark Dambly, guy who was chairman, Ira Lubert, and then one of the emeritus trustees, Keith Mosser, uh, is, he's not a voting member anymore, but he's certainly on the board. So, you know, I have an uphill battle, but, um, you know, the thing that... Uh, that I always count on is I'm willing to work harder than everybody else. At the, at the, thank uh, sure thank God about- the, uh, alum, uh, the uh, alumni elected uh, trustees such as yourself came out with that report, um, which really nails down what's going on. Uh, as, as Ralph said, it, it appears uh, to be a blatant cover-up of you know their intent and the actions that they took uh, early on. I said, you know, uh, anybody in that position and in, in their position would sit back and uh, uh, take a breath and go, hey, you know, what what exactly are we looking at? I mean, none of the none of the information uh, comes uh, comes to be that none of the information that they were looking at was credible, that they were they were acting on uh, information that uh, was not credible. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> Again, you need to understand that there are 36 voting members on this board at the time um, that we won the right to see that material. 
those members who were not part of our lawsuit were also uh, given the same right to see the material. They had to sign confidentiality where we were subject to a court order. And and there might have been of the 36 members, another four of them who actually signed the confidentiality agreement. I'm talking about a supermajority of this board had no interest, zero, none. A report by Louis Free was issued, and as far as they were concerned, that was behind us, and they were moving on. That's oh, that gosh. that saddens me. And and again, if I were a legislator in, in the state of Pennsylvania, um, I would be really concerned because the state of Pennsylvania provides Penn State with several hundred million dollars every year in, in its. Uh, its allocation of, of resources that come from hardworking taxpayers. But they don't seem to be. They really and truly don't seem to be. So the vast majority sit there in a meeting listening to the board chair, the general counsel, the university president, and they literally believe everything they're told. They literally believe everything they're told. Quite frankly, many of them come up, come to these meetings completely unprepared. They don't care. It's an honorarium for them. They, they, they're less interested than they are in, in going to a PTO meeting, I think, honestly. So at the end of the day, you know, all that I can do is, is what I'm doing and hope that, that um, the tortoise, in fact, does win the race. Anthony, you're an accountant. Um, I know. This well, by, is... by, by education and training, I, I am an accountant. I, I'm an inactive CPA. I have a financial uh, financial services practice, but but yes, I have an accounting background. Okay. Any idea what this has cost Penn State in terms oh, of dollars? Yeah, my heavens. Oh, it's it's north of uh, three hundred and fifty million dollars, easily. Wow. If, we, if you think about, it, we paid sixty million dollars in fines. Um, you know, the, if you read the the footnotes, the financials, uh, we we've paid a hundred and a hundred and twenty plus million dollars in. In settlements, uh, we probably paid $100 million in legal fees. Uh, um, you know, we, we, we lost revenues that the Big Ten withheld from us for a couple of years because we were prohibited from going to bowls. You add that up. And then on top of it, you have the added compliance that was imposed on the entire institution. And that overhead is ongoing. So, and, and Ralph, I can't quantify the the cost of our reputation. Well, that, yeah. How would you even begin to assess that, do that damage assessment? Well, I think, I think if you, any, anytime you read a story about the case, it's, you know, you know where it always starts and, and they always refer to Joe and they refer to Penn state. It's never in a positive way. Yeah. Anthony, you, you've opened the door on the fiduciary responsibility thing. Um, having looked to, uh, looked at the uh, settlements in this case to the so-called victims. I think the figure you just tossed out was $120 million. The last time I heard there were 36 to 38 claimants. And what I found, I'm sure you're familiar with all this and know far more than I do, but th this money was paid out to these 38 folks without these guys, without anybody uh, vetting anything. I mean, John Snidden and I went through the 36 names that we had, and a third of these guys had criminal records. And I, I just found, I, I was just shocked when you're talking about fiduciary responsibility, that it, it appears to me that 
you know, these 36 victims, they weren't interviewed personally by psychiatrists. They weren't deposed by lawyers. There were no detectives sent out to check out their story. No lie detector tests were given. Penn State just wrote out checks. These guys didn't even have to give their real names. And I want to know if you have any insight into that process. Well, yes, I do. I'll be careful because it's you know, there are some things I, I can't share, but what I can share is that uh, that I think serving on a board as large as Penn State, you, you can fall prey to this groupthink concept. So let me take you back. Uh, I joined the board July of 2012. Uh, before the end of the fall, we already have our first claim against the institution. So Penn State decides in its infinite wisdom that they're going to cede the authority uh, to settle these cases as they develop to its legal subcommittee. So they they offer a resolution. Um, I, I take exception to that resolution because I don't want to cede my authority, and I certainly don't want to preclude the opportunity to review information. So we we have an agreement. The, the chair of the legal subcommittee at the time was Ira Lubert. And Ira Lubert assures us that they will make no settlements without first coming to the board. So to his credit, he comes to the board and, and they want to settle. I, I can't remember the number. It was for $60 million. It was 20, I don't know, 20 some. I was 26, 28. I, I don't remember offhand. And, and I ask Ira if each and every one of these claimants has been interviewed by a forensic psychologist. And Ira assures me that a forensic psychologist has, in fact, interviewed these people. And again, we're convinced that our insurer is going to ostensibly handle a significant amount of, of this, this uh, payment. So um, I admittedly voted in favor of the settlement. I, that's one of my votes I wish I had back. That was a mistake. Fast forward, and now we're going to have another vote because there are another handful of claims that are going to be made. And there is one claim that was very, very public. Um, this was a claim, an individual who actually won the right to the free materials. Huh. And, and uh, as an institution, I don't believe we believed it was in our best interest to let them have access to it. So we were going to settle with that, that claimant. And, and we call Did the price of poker go up on that one, Anthony. What's that? Did the price of poker go up on that one? I when can't we, say, um... I, I can't, I can't say Ralph, but I can say this, that, that if you go back to the board meeting during which we voted um, at this point, uh, the, the, uh, the antenna had already gone up. Uh, we learned that, some of the representations being made by our colleagues were untrue. And, and so we begin to ask for more information and, and they don't like it. They don't like it at all. And, uh, and finally we, we decide we're going to move forward and they're going to settle. And um, we vote against a handful of us vote against the settlement. And a number of us make statements that, well, concerned general counsel at Penn state, um, again, at this point, we didn't yet have the settlement of, or of the, uh, the insurance claims. And then of course you go to the insurance claims and, 
you learned that the representations that were made to us were untrue, that that uh, individuals weren't vetted. They were certainly weren't interviewed personally. Um, as I read some of the, the claims that were in the public domain, it became clear to me that they, they, they just couldn't have possibly occurred. I mean, for example, the notion that Joe Paterno gave someone an, a, a tour of Beaver Stadium or had lunch with someone at Beaver Stadium is just a, beyond the, the, any sense of reasonableness because Joe didn't have time to give a tour of Beaver Stadium to his own grandkids. But, you know, we were interested in putting this stuff behind us. But I'll tell you what happened, though, as a result of that insurance claim case, the PMA, Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association case, uh, becoming public. We learned that there were two claims that were settled dating back to the 70s. We, we, had, we had no idea. None. Zero. In fact, Keith Mosser, who was the chair of the board at, during this point, he even said, I had no idea we were settling those two claims. None. So, again, it gets back to my point of, of our fiduciary duty and the fact that we weren't made aware. Now, we can ask questions. I can promise you, Ralph and, and John, I, I asked, I put in writing lots and lots of requests. They did everything they could to ensure that I didn't get information until I threatened to sue them. And if it wasn't for us suing them with respect to the free materials, I probably would have gotten nothing ever. But the moment we sued them and then went to court, and to show you how nice these people are, they said, we're not going to pay your legal bill in this case. And the legal bill in, the, in, in that case was almost $600,000. I mean, I was, at, I was on the hook for $600,000. I, I had to sue them to get that money. And then they changed the bylaws so that no longer is the university responsible to reimburse a trustee if the trustee brings an action. So think about this. It, I'm, a, I'm a dissenting trustee, and I think they're doing something improperly. If I want to go after them, it's, a, it's at my risk. Now, if I win... I can then sue them for the legal fees, but again, it's at my risk. It seems like we're discouraging good governance. Well, this whole case was about people not being interested in good governance, so it's off the path a little bit. But again, you you know, you asked the question about uh, about the claimants, and um, uh, you know, now the spending limits have been raised for the for the president of the university to ten million, so he doesn't have to actually get approval from the board for anything that's below $10 million. Heavens knows, heavens knows, you know, what, what other things they've done. They, they don't share with the full board though. They don't. That's been their, their modus operandi for some time. And, and that, that frankly is part of the reason why we, we had the trouble that we had. So, so you've got, you've got a, uh, a group of uh, individuals that are willing to pay exorbitant amounts of money to unvetted alleged victims that have stories that uh, clearly can't be uh, verified. Um, but yet when you go after the truth, they're not, you have to, uh, it's like pulling teeth to get, uh, get the money back that where you're, you're uh, suing them. Right. I mean, yeah, it does seem backwards, John. I will admit it does seem backwards. And, and that's, and that's all this has ever been about for us is trying to find the truth. You know, we'll, we'll never know the complete truth, but 
what I do know is I, I do know anytime somebody fights really hard to keep me from having information means that they probably have something they don't want me to see. I don't think there's any question about that. And I think with with this with this group of people, I have found them to be less honorable than than they should be as representatives of the Penn State Board of Trustees. And that's sad for me. I mean, there are some really good people on the board. Don't get me wrong, but there are a lot of people who just aren't interested in getting their hands dirty, rolling up their sleeves, and working particularly hard. They don't want to do that. Some of them actually believe it's not their job to verify the veracity. If the president of the university tells you something. And it's got to be the truth, right? Yeah. Wasn't it their fiduciary responsibility, though, to find out whether these alleged victims were telling the truth? Shouldn't you know, they? I, I, they could to vet those claims? I, again, you know, <laughs> Ken Frazier, I think, said it best when he wrote Cynthia. He said, um, uh, you, you, can't, you can't counter these kinds of allegations in the court of public opinion. You, you can't, you know, the, the political correct, correctness crowd uh, runs amok and you're guilty until proven innocent. It turns our, our system of justice upside down. And, and in the case of, of uh, Jerry Sandusky, he was, he was dead in the, in the water before this even got rolling. You know, the fact that they made a presentment that that was factually untrue poisoned the jury pool, poisoned the jury pool. And that I believe that was intentional knowing the bad faith on the part of some of the people who were involved, in my opinion. Um, you know, speaking with some of the folks who were interviewed, I, I got to tell you, I mean, the, the behavior on the part of the, some of these members of the Office of the Attorney General is reprehensible, truly reprehensible. It wasn't about the truth. It was, it was about proving their point, and they didn't want to know anything else. You know, this, this whole concept of, of sharing exculpatory information, I think, I think that's, a, that's a pipe dream. You know, even even though, you know, Brady v. Maryland provided that right, I just wonder how much exculpatory evidence is uh, with, withheld from a defendant or at least withheld until the 24th hour. I mean, look, in this case, Amendola gets hit with 10,000, 20,000 pages of documents two weeks before. Joe Amendola was already overwhelmed to begin with. There was no way he could handle this. This case was was just it was dead in the water from the outset. Jerry had no chance. The court of public opinion was against him. It was against Tim Curley. It was against Gary Schultz. They couldn't win. They just could not win. And it's sad because uh, I I think if uh, people had access to all of the information, they, they might have uh, reached slightly different conclusions. I, so I think. We, I, are you saying that uh, you don't think, in your opinion, that you think does Jerry Sandusky deserve a new trial from what you know about the case? Well, I've always said that I believe that Jerry Jerry did not get due process and he does deserve another trial. Yes, okay. I do believe that. I, I, there's no question about that. You know, you, I, I would love to have a competent counsel defending Jerry in, a, in this case. And and then we'll see what happens with the case. You know, somebody who has an opportunity to to do the kind of work that needed to be done to ensure that that Jerry got his day. People will argue, well, Jerry did get his day in court. I will argue that that the system was stacked against uh, against Jerry from the very beginning, and that was, in my opinion, it was intentional. I, again, I'm not going to speak to guilt or innocence. I, as I said earlier, 
in, in this podcast, I'm all about due process. And I think his due process rights were violated. And that should worry each and every one of us. Because if they do it to him, they can do it to any one of us. Anthony, I got to ask you, when you read uh, the uh, diary of former FBI agent Kathleen McChesney, were you shocked to find out that uh, it appeared that Deputy Attorney General Frank Fina was leading the free, the supposedly independent free investigation? I can't speak to whether or not I, I know what you're talking about, Ralph, but um, I will just say this, that I, I reviewed the materials and, um, and my conclusion along with my, my uh, six co-plaintiffs was very, very different than the conclusion reached by, by Louis Free. Uh, I, I have no doubt that, um, that Louis Free under oath told the truth, that that was simply his opinion. It just, it really, it speaks very poorly of our, our media, though, that, that, they, <laughs> that they ran with, with what he said. You know, anybody with half a brain could read that 247 report and see that it didn't dovetail with the executive summary, right? But they weren't interested in that. It gets back to my, to my uh, position from the get-go, which was that, uh, um, you know, there was, a, there was a, a motivation on the part of, of free, and it was all about money. Um, not just the $8.3 million. So, but but weren't there emails that laid out that Free was basically using the Penn State uh, report as a lost leader so he could become the quote-unquote go-to investigator for the NCAA? Wasn't that laid out in emails? I can't, again, speak to what we, we may or may not have seen or reviewed during the course okay. of our review. I'll tell you, I saw them. But, but, but let me just say this. You made reference to that as a lost leader. I can promise you the free investigation was not a lost leader. That $8.3 million was a profit center. Oh. Totally. He didn't lose any money for $8.3 million. No, okay. but what he was doing, he was angling to uh, land a bigger fish. I'm not suggesting that he wasn't. Yeah. What I'm suggesting to you, though, is that, that he, he made money on the Penn State investigation. There's no question about it. And, you know, his ulterior motive was about profit and, uh, and as I said earlier, he, he produced a report that allowed the NCAA to hammer Penn State. And that, that carried favor for free with, with the NCAA. I mean, I'm, I'm frankly shocked that Mark Emmert is still heading the NCAA. You know, you, again, it just it, it shows you how the Penn State case changed the, the uh, landscape of the NCAA because We've since seen some real abuse at places like Michigan State and Ohio State and even even USC, and yet they were never sanctioned, mm -hmm. right? Anthony, were, were, were you as trustees ever told uh, anything about the settlement of the insurance case where the Penn State's own insurance carriers sued the university because right. of those big settlements? Well, when you say settlement, so remember that in the case of Penn State and, and PMA, Right. Manufacturers Association, you know, they were the primary insurer. Right. Um, we, we were we were updated just in terms of where the case stood. We weren't provided with the details. It wasn't until the judge in that case allowed the release of some of the sealed documents. And that was the direct result, I think, of an action brought by the media. Right. Mm -hmm. So so it, it otherwise we would never have known 
for example, those two claims in the 70s were, were, were made, those two claims were settled, excuse me, we would never have seen some of the documents that we have now seen. You know, you would never have seen uh, excerpts from some of the depositions of some of the people who were paid. Uh, you, you wouldn't have seen them. We never got that level of detail ever in any of our, our briefings. Uh, our briefings were always high level, and you had, to, you had to be thinking about questions to ask. Otherwise, they just weren't going to share them with the full board. And, and again, I'm, I'm not suggesting bad motives on the part of, of general counsel when he would conduct the briefings. And general counsel, uh, I think, tried his, his best um, to provide us with information, but, but it was an overwhelming task. Now, I will say, though, that they definitely did not want to share some of the levels of information that ultimately were learned because they feared that information was being leaked from the boardroom. You know, I mean, they always pointed a finger at me. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's again, it's ironic because I wasn't on the board uh, when, uh, when they did discuss the report that the seven of us made. I'm sure that they said I'm the one who leaked it. And the irony is I had nothing to do with it. So it's kind of funny. You got the blame anyway, right? Well, I'm always going to get the blame. Uh, you know, I can't wait to return. I'm sure it'll be a warm welcome back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anthony, why are you going back, by the way? Uh, well, let me let me clear the record on this too. So I left the board be primarily for two reasons. My father had uh, had gotten ill; he had had a stroke, uh, and and I really wanted to spend some time with my dad. And as it turned out, I I ended up being responsible for taking him to his his doctor's appointments, and and that was really time I could never get back. I mean, I I spent a couple of years with my dad. He passed away February of last year. He not quite 90 years of age, um, but I, I needed I needed to spend time with my daddy. I needed to be there to to help my father. And secondly, I was having some some health issues myself. I was having problems with my left hip. I ultimately got a hip replacement last April, April of 2019. So I needed to to get myself well too. I mean, serving on the board for six years and working as hard as I did and as intensely as I did, it did take its toll. And I just needed to regroup. I, I I never imagined that I wouldn't return because honestly, I still think there's unfinished business. And and I, I actually believe this time around, I'm much better prepared to serve as an effective trustee because I understand it so much better. When I first became trustee in 2012, I was like a deer in the headlights. I mean, I, literally, I, I, I had no idea how they operated, none. And if you don't think that it was... At the time, there were 32 trustees. It was it was 29 to uh, to one, or 29 to three, because there at the time myself, Ryan McCombie, and Adam Taliaferro were trustees. We'd been elected in 2012 and replaced three sitting trustees. So they they were after me. You know, Mark Dambly looked at me at the very first meeting back in 2012 and said, "Hey, you know what? We're moving on." You're you're just part of that small minority, the angry alumni. And you know, it, it, it was an uphill battle, but now it's a it's a different group of people. Um and I, I just think we need to finish some of the things that we started and, and I think I can be more effective in my role and, and we're gonna be hiring a president here in another year or so, and I wanna be part of that process. 
Is there any way we can get a new chairman of the board? I, well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So in fact, that's a great question. Um, the chairman under the, the bylaws, as I recall, limited to, to three one-year terms. And so Dambly's term ended this year. However, because mm -hmm. of the pandemic, they did not have an election. In, uh, they're not having an election at this coming meeting in July. It's been postponed until no later than December. So he's still on for at least two meetings, maybe three, but then he's gone. And Matt Schuyler, I'm presuming, is going to ascend to the role of chair because I don't think anyone's going to oppose him. You know, the uh, besides the fact that you have an umbrella of, uh, you know, uh, the remainder, remainder of the board outside of the uh, alumni elected uh, trustees, you have an umbrella of fiduciary uh, irresponsibility, um, which uh, teeters on uh, being a criminal event. Um, and to bring up criminal events, uh, you know, a lot of people are aware of, and they should be aware, that the uh, current uh, chairman of the board, Mark Dambly, can't remember that he was arrested or inca incarcerated. Yeah, I think, I, mean, I, think, I think he couldn't remember having served five days in jail. Right. And then uh, he's got some other issues that are uh, in the uh, criminal arena. I mean, how can people... I mean, not only Penn State, not only Penn State uh, alumni and Penn State students and Penn State employees, but Pennsylvania as a totality with the money that you said, um, you know, Pennsylvania pumps into Penn State. I mean, how can they feel comfortable at all with a guy that can't remember that he was arrested or spent five days in a, in a jail? Yeah, well, you know, when he was first elected to the board, that was a topic of discussion and uh, the vote wasn't unanimous, but he, he certainly had a majority of the vote to secure right. the, the chair. My, my point is that you, how, can you, how can you have any faith? How can the citizens of Pennsylvania or uh, you know, alumni at Penn State or students or employees have any faith in, in the uh, larger portion of the uh, Board of Trustees based on the fact that the guy that runs it uh, has a, a significant criminal history. Well, again, uh, as I told Mark Dambly, the outset of my my first term, he and I will never be friends. We just have a very different compass, and you can, uh, you, can, you, can, you you simply cannot trust anything uh, he says. I well, mean, the, his credibility is zero. You know, the. You, you're you're um, you're talking to somebody who didn't vote for Mark as chair. It's certainly not the, the two opportunities that I had to vote for him as chair. I voted against Mark as chair. I, uh, I know even even with that background notwithstanding, the, the type of person I want as chair is somebody who's who's willing to engage themselves, not somebody who doesn't have. Uh, the time or the energy to put into it. Um, you know, leadership sometimes requires standing by yourself. And we, we live in a, a time where if you're willing to stand by yourself, well, people are, are certainly going to take shots at you and it's much easier to go along. I, right. But, you know, it's a, the, the bigger picture is if you have somebody like that, 
um, and and that uh, information is known to the uh, the board of trustees who actually installed him as a chairman. What does it say about them? What well, does it say about them? <clears throat> yes. Yeah, so when when he asked about that, his response was that it was it's not verified. That and I'm talking about some of the other matters to which you alluded just a few moments ago, uh, not the five days in, in incarceration. Um, he, he's recently gotten that expunged, but, um, but some of the other behaviors that were alleged, uh, you know, he claims it's, no one's ever verified it. In other words, it's not documented. He didn't deny it, which was really telling when asked. Um, oh, well, Anthony, I, I happen to have interviewed a uh, retired investigator who um, fitted uh, Dambly for a wire for yeah. a uh, cocaine investigation. May he rest yeah, in I peace. That. May he rest in peace, that investigator, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I printed what he told me. So, uh, you know, he that was one of the biggest cocaine dealers uh, yeah. rings ever in that yeah. I, I understand completely. And again, I don't disagree. I voted against him, as did my my alumni elected colleagues. But, you know, the challenge with a board like Penn State, you have three people who get their voting seats by virtue of their ex officio status, right? The secretary of education, um, the, the uh, secretary of agriculture and the secretary of the environment those those three those are typically you know more political then you have the governor's six appointees and then you got six people who are appointed from business and industry from within the board so that's a rather insular group and then you got the agricultural trustees some of whom never went to college um some not that makes them bad people but again you know, Penn State's got a six, seven, eight billion dollar operating budget. That's a big number, and that's a lot to get your arms around. Uh, but you know, again, you're dealing with this 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 composite of people who who aren't interested in really engaging and and thinking about who do you want as your your leader for the board of trustees, and and what don't you want in your leader, the board of trustees. You know, people can make mistakes. That's okay. But you need to acknowledge those mistakes, apologize for those mistakes, and then we can move on, right? It's it's the failure to acknowledge them, take responsibility for them that causes us to have the conversation today. Well, I, I remember Gary Sanderson putting a microphone under Mr. Dambly's uh, face and asking him if he remembered being in jail and being arrested, and uh, he denied everything. So, I mean... Well, look, Mark Dambly, when I won my reelection to the board this go round, I think is quoted as saying, uh, well, hopefully I can be a productive member. We can have productive. Uh, he used some words that he didn't use for Alice Pope and Jay Paterno. And, and I um, and I and I wrote Mark and I asked him, uh, you know, if if what I had seen in the papers was true and and Mark. Mark said yes. He'd been quoted properly. In fact, um, I'll read to you because I wrote this to you. It said, um, uh, "But since all that, uh, let's just see here." He wrote that uh, he hoped that that I I could be productive and and constructive. Productive oh. and constructive, and I asked him what he meant by that. And he said, that's self-explanatory, self-explanatory. 
We've come a long way as a board these past few years, meaning since I'm gone. And I'm hopeful we can continue to build on that progress and focus on the many important issues we are currently facing. In other words, I don't want to look backwards and, and deal with the issues we never resolved. I just want to move on. And that's, that's the mindset of many. And what they don't understand is that psychologically speaking, we can as a community move forward until we heal. And the right. only way we can heal is for us to have honest conversations. It's okay. Look, the, the board was under extreme pressure in November 2011. Extreme pressure. I, I would say to you, with the exception of Ken Frazier, no one on that board was prepared. None. Zero. You know, Corbett sat in the room. Actually, he was on the telephone. Corbett, Corbett drove what happened that night. No question about it. He was talking to Surma. He drove what was happening that, that evening. But none of them were prepared. They were like deer in the headlights. And when you watch them go out on stage and you watch John Surma and listen to John Surma announce what he announced, you could tell these people, they were scared, rightfully so, because the university had been attacked. See, there had never been any proof put forth. There was just this as we now know, false presentment made. But we had the media in a frenzy. And 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 for your two two guests who are two hosts there who are formerly part of law enforcement, I'll point out that in the presentment, not only did 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 they lie with respect to what McQuarrie said, but they did something in that presentment that's just never done. It's just never done. And you'll never see it in a federal presentment. But what they did when they used Joe Paterno's name was was they wanted to draw attention to Joe Paterno. Okay, typically, if you're not a target of an investigation, you're not named. No but shit. In, but, in this, but in this presentment, they went out of their way to name Joe Paterno. They didn't even name Mike McQuarrie. They referred to Mike McQuarrie as a graduate assistant. And, and it was over the weekend... When the media accounts of Joe Paterno and his behavior and handling of this were positive, that, that Corbett wasn't happy. So he, he sends Linda Kelly out on Monday to make a statement, and she's joined by Noonan, the head of the, the state police, and Noonan castigates Joe. He says, well, he, he met his, his legal authority, his, his legal obligations, but he didn't meet his moral obligations. Who the hell is he to, to sit on his high horse and, and, and preach morality to us? When he's got people in the office of the attorney general who are as immoral as they come. But, but Anthony, from a from a um, media perspective, this was a nothing story without Joe Paterno. Absolutely. Right? Exactly. You're exactly right. You are 100 percent right. And that's why they had to refer to him. Otherwise, it goes no place. Because who knew who knew Jerry Sandusky? Yep. Yeah. Right? Yep. It's just unbelievable. Anthony, do you have anything to say about the complete lack of curiosity of the mainstream media when it comes to taking a second look at what happened at Penn State? Yeah, so <laughs> uh, I, I am I am quite befuddled by the lack of journalistic curiosity. Uh, it's it, it's it's it just I think truly underscores the sad state of journalism today. Uh, there's just no intellectual curiosity, you know, nobody, as far as I can tell in the mainstream media, really wants to explore this. And I think in large part because the issue is politically 
Correct. This is such a sensitive issue. You're talking about potentially child molestation, child abuse, and and they don't they don't want to suggest that somebody got it wrong because that would mean that maybe the claimants didn't tell the truth. Oh, that would be shocking. Right. So you know, yeah. it's like the Me Too movement. I mean, mm-hmm. again, again, and I'm not minimizing people who are who are harmed. Believe me, I, that's not my my point. My point in all of this is that that each of us is entitled to due process. And if one of us has that due process infringed upon, then we all do, all of us. Anthony, this case is not about uh, alleged child abuse. It's about corruption. Yeah. I mean, you you uh, touched on the fact that you've got a, uh, uh, a Pennsylvania attorney general's office that uh, has no morals. It's an immoral uh, and criminal enterprise. I mean, you know, uh, I, I think uh, to focus on the corruption and the political vendetta that was uh, pursued in that entire case is the big picture. And it can, as you've said before, it can happen to anybody. But, uh, you know, that that also bleeds into the uh, the larger part of the uh, board of trustees. Anybody with it has a uh, moral compass on that board of trustees is going to say to themselves, whoa, this is all wrong. Yeah, well, you know, again, you're suggesting that people actually are interested in, in fulfilling their fiduciary duty and, and researching themselves to verify the veracity of what it is they've been told. Serving as a trustee isn't an, an honorarium. It's, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, a hard, hard responsibility if you're going to, to serve effectively and, and discharge your duties as a, as a fiduciary. Nobody said it would be easy. I don't think that folks understand, though, the level of effort that's required, in a pl- especially in a place like Penn State that has so many tentacles. So they're, they're just not, they're, they're not interested you know, if you're a political appointee, if you're a gubernatorial appointee, for example, uh, you know, do you want to uncover something and have to go back to the governor, even though you shouldn't go back to the governor because your duty is to the university? But that's what they do. They go back to the governor because they don't want to hurt the governor. See, that that's what's wrong with the composition of this board. It's too large. And the board knows it's too large. They they know it. What are your suggestions in regard to making the... Uh... The board, you know, already they did. They, you know, they failed. The major part of the board failed in their fiduciary responsibility, and uh, in uh, coupling with a uh, criminal enterprise in the Pennsylvania Attorney General's office, caused this whole thing to explode. And as you said, um, an exorbitant amount of paid, uh, uh, an exorbitant amount of uh, taxpayer money was expended on a on a political vendetta. Yeah. I mean, how would you? Uh, if you were to uh, reimagine the board of trustees, how many people would you have on there? Well, I can tell you that we proposed some legislation. Um, I personally wouldn't have a board larger than 13, but that's not going to happen at Penn State. So I, I supported some legislation, I think, that would reduce the board to, I think it was 20, 23 people. 23 people is still large, but it's not nearly as large as what what it is today. And when I joined the board, there were 32 voting members, including the governor and the university president. So just imagine 
you're in the room, it's November 2011, and you're on a conference call, and the governor's on the call, the governor, and he's a voting member. Do you think the governor has some sway in that room? Huh. Right? Well, and, and not huh. just, but think about it. You know, the conflict is inherent because the governor has budgetary authority, right? I mean, the legislature does technically, but the governor can, he can veto a, a budget. So, so the university is getting money from the state. They're not going to annoy the, the sitting governor, are they? Of course not. Yeah. And, and by the way, you know, there was, there was always the, the uh, supposition that, uh, that Corbett's wasn't real happy with Joe because when Corbett ran for governor, Joe was unwilling to publicly support him. Exactly. You have to recognize the reasons for Joe's decision. This is this is this is how how insightful I, I, Joe was. I I tell you, it was always interesting to listen to him explain some why he did some of the things that he did. But in this case, if if Joe decides to side with one person over another, and that person loses and the other guy wins, he could hurt the university. So so Joe's point was, hey, I'm not I'm not going to support either one of you publicly. Because in 2010, the other guy was a Penn Stater as well. And then, of course, Graham Spanier had already, you know, he, he, like all presidents, would have tailgates before every home football game at the president's house. It's called Schreier's house. And, uh, and it was, I think, the last home game of the year in 2010. And, uh, and, and they had this tailgate and both candidates were invited and when Corbett arrived he, he saw the Democrat candidate and he wasn't happy wasn't happy now Corbett gets elected and he immediately proposes a significant budget cut to higher education and, and Graham took him on publicly and that really ticked off Corbett and it wasn't yeah. long after that that they had him in front of the grand jury yeah yeah, so, exactly. So again, if you don't think there's a political connection here, then I have a bridge in New York to sell you. And the same thing with the board of trustees. They're, they're all politically motivated. The only ones who truly are democratically elected are the alumni. Right. We're the only ones. Even agriculture. Agriculture trustees are elected by virtue of the agricultural societies in the state of Pennsylvania. Well, the Farm Bureau and the Grange are the two largest, and they control who gets elected. And each, each county in the state gets three votes. I think there are 67 counties in the state of Pennsylvania, I think. I'm going from memory. That's, that's it. And it's controlled by essentially two, two organizations. They control the whole thing. So the democratically elected trustees represent nine of now the 36 voting members. We were nine of 32, and then we moved to eliminate voting rights for the governor and for the president. So now we were nine of 30. And then Wolf appears to be on his way to an election, and they made the board larger because they were afraid that Wolf would appoint six people to the board who were more in agreement with the alumni elected trustees. And then he'd have the three ex officios, and now we'd have control. So what did they do? They, they made it larger. So now by virtue of making it larger, you've made it even more cumbersome. Oh, which geez. which which adds to their argument that they really can't share information with everyone because it's too cumbersome. It's a convenient argument. To touch uh, on kind of describe the uh, governor being on the uh, conference call, you know, it's interesting to note that disgraced former Governor Tom 
Tom Corbett, repeatedly made the statement, remember the boy in the shower. And that never happened. Well, that's uh, what, what he said. He said that later. He said, I never said that, but he did say it. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and it never happened. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And, well, again, yes. Well, again, the representation in the presentment turned out to be untrue. Right. McCreary never represented that he witnessed that. What he saw made him uncomfortable, but he didn't really know what he saw. And let me let me share this with all of you, because, you know, I, I'm a I'm a I'm a show me kind of person. So I'm from Missouri and and I need to see and touch and feel. So so right after the this happened, I decided to to go over to the Lash building. Now, I'm not a trustee, but I do know a lot of the people. And of course, at this point, I've uh, I've gained some notoriety first because my name's on a baseball stadium, and second, because I've, I've been so vocal in the media. And I go over to the last building ostensibly to actually look at the physical space as described in the presentment, where this purported assault occurred. And because I'd never been there. I'd never been in that locker room. I didn't know anything about that. Locker room. So I went into that locker room. First thing I noticed was that you can't actually go directly into the locker room. You actually walk into a, I call it like a little vestibule. So you open a door and walk into like this little vestibule. And then you open another door and that takes you in the locker room. Well, I was remember, remember the representation in the, in the presentment was that, that he heard slapping sounds when he opened the, the door, the first door. So I had somebody in the shower with the water running because I wanted to, to myself hear what, what someone else would have heard. Now, it supposedly is late at night, so it must have been quiet except for the noise in the shower, right? So yeah. I, I walk into this vestibule, and this person who, who's helping me is in the shower with, with the shower on, and I can't hear a thing. I cannot hear a thing. I tell him, I'm telling him to yell, I can't hear anything. Nothing! Now... The second door I open and I'm staring at a mirror. The mirror can't be but a few feet in front of me. And there are a couple of sinks in front of it. And to the left is a, a, a urinal. And to the left of that is a, a commode. And then behind them in the back are all the, the shower heads. To the right, when you walk in of the mirror are the lockers. Well, I'm, I'm looking in that mirror and there's no way what was representative represented could have happened. And more importantly, given the time constraints, just seconds, there's no way, no way what was represented could have occurred the way it was represented. And, and oh, by the way, and I always go back to this, if, if, this, if this was such an egregious event, don't you think I would have at least remembered the year in which it occurred, right? Because remember, yep. it's 2002. Well, here's the rub, people. The rub is that the Office of the Attorney General knew that they had that 10-year window. And if they say it's 2001, if it had been represented as 2001, they would have had a problem. Yeah. They would, because they were past that statute of limitations. So, so, again, so many problems with the story as represented. But that's the minutiae. Now, who wants to get into the minutiae? Instead, the way we're going to play this is we're going to leak the presentment and then we're going to inflame the jury pool. And then the two guys who might serve as witnesses, we're going to charge them so that 
they won't testify. And then later on, because we want to get the president of the university, we're going to offer a proffer to Cynthia Baldwin so that we can charge Spanier right before Kathleen Kane takes office. Bad people, bad motives, bad, bad, bad. And this isn't the system of justice that I want. If people are guilty, so be it. We have laws for a reason. We're a civilization because we have laws. We have rules. Anthony, if, uh, you know, it, it, this speaks to exactly what you said. I mean, you know, if you have a case, um, myself, Anna, and Tom have had cases that, that we've worked that have been significant, that, uh, you know, if, if you have the evidence, you don't have to rely on corruption yep. to, you know, facilitate a, uh, you know, your, to complete your uh, political motivation. This is, uh, the, it's unbelievable. I mean, people, uh, how they cannot wake up to the fact that if you have corruption in a case, obviously that case wasn't going anywhere. Well, it was inconvenient, certainly, to move it forward during a gubernatorial campaign. Yeah. Right? Yeah, the, the motivations are just so bad. And then the people put in charge, you know, they have a history of, of bad motivations. You know, we saw that. I, I, I'm going to find, a, it's funny, Debbie Fina, Frank Fina's wife, sent an email to Frank Fina. Oh, God. Yeah. And um, I got to find the, the email. I once posted it someplace, um, and and you know essentially she says, "Can you believe this? Believe this? You know, as she's leaving off, as he's leaving office, you know, this is this is all about a dead football coach or something like that." And but but she alludes to to him having served honorably, and they should be very proud of the job that he did. And I thought to myself, "You're kidding me, right? I mean, yes, this is this is not honorable in my view." Uh, the ends do not justify the means. When when you misrepresent in order to secure a victory, I, I think you have you have clearly harmed our system of justice and all of us who depend on it to be fair. Well, and, Anthony, if I could just add this, you've got a circumstance. Just as an example, I mean, there there are two entities here that that uh, need to answer to what they've done. One. You've got uh, you've got a uh, office of disciplinary counsel, which is just a uh, you know administrative disciplinary uh, entity, but they know that there was a criminal conspiracy to have this done involving Fina, Frank Fina. Why don't they make a criminal referral on what they know? The other thing is this: you have judges. Uh, in the Pennsylvania judiciary that have ruled on a case that they know that there was prosecutorial misconduct in that case. You cannot rule on a case that you know to have had prosecutorial misconduct in it um, without going back to, to uh, straighten out the prosecutorial misconduct issues. I mean, it's just uh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. There, there are a lot of unbelievable elements to this case. Uh, let me speak to the Office of the Attorney General and its, and its unwillingness to move forward against a former member of its, of its staff. Uh, again, remember, 
these are this, this is a political office. The the attorney general is an elected official. I think John Zimmerman touched on this when you spoke with him. Yes, yes. And uh, and so, it, you know, if you come across information in the course of 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 uh, any sort of review that suggests criminality, you you have a couple of of choices. Um, Certainly in, in the case of Penn State and the suggestion that there was any criminality on the part of members of the Attorney General's office, the university has certainly the ability to move forward themselves and, and share that information. Now, that'll be a question. That'll be a question that I'll ask when I join the board. Yes. Right. Um, yes. I, I as as uh, somebody who, who might have done some research in this area and, and might have come across material that suggested criminality. And I am subject to an order of the court, but ordinarily I could go directly to the office of the attorney general, or I could go to the, to the uh, district attorney in the county where the alleged offense occurred. In this case, you, you know, you have the choice of the office of the attorney general, or you go to Dauphin County because that's where the case was handled. And again, politically, the, the connections are, are much too strong for there ever to be effective action against the parties. I mean, we saw what happened in the disciplinary hearing with FINA originally, right? The argument that these, these folks made was that, that FINA didn't violate uh, any rules because he's not the one who actually um, delivered the subpoenas, Right. Bruce Beamer was, I think, the guy involved in them or someone else in the office, which which if you think about this is preposterous. So you're you're in an office and a subpoena gets served. The subpoenas were served on Curley and Schultz and, and Paterno. But you're not the one who served them. So now you're not responsible, even though, you know, they were served. And that's what they ruled initially. And then it was it was uh, appealed and by by Kitrich and and it got overturned. Um, I, I unfortunately the politics are so strong in the state of Pennsylvania in the judiciary that it makes this even more challenging. You know, it, I hate to say it. You know, you look at the judges; they're elected too, and you know, look at look at these counties and the people who work in the counties and the nature of their relationships with law enforcement and others. It really does. It it takes a very very strong person. I'm afraid today to stand up and say, hey, this is just wrong. You know, you and I would call it integrity, but I suspect that a lot of folks are afraid right now because of what's going on in our world. But think about this is back in 2010, 2009, 2010. And of course, free investigation took place beginning November of 11 through July of 12 when they issued the report. Um, and, and you would hope that somebody would would be reading some of the materials that have been printed. But apparently, to the point you asked made earlier that I made earlier, that I think that it speaks to journalism today. There's just no curiosity. Nobody nobody wants to suggest that somebody in the office of the attorney general acted criminally by, for, for example, leaking grand jury secret information. But yeah, I mean, but, Kathleen, but Kathleen Kane went to jail. Right. Because politically that was expedient because, again, you know, Kathleen didn't recognize what she was dealing with with people she, she challenged. So I don't know the answer, folks. 
I, I know that, that anybody willing to stand up and speak out puts himself or herself at risk. But sometimes it's just too important to walk away, to make sure we get something right. And I'm, you know, I, I think this is one of those cases. I mean, to make a reference to uh, what's going on on the planet, like right now, I would say, uh, you know, people in this case, I mean, uh, you know, people need to stop taking a knee. I mean, this this uh, situation is blatant um, and it needs to be addressed because, as you said before, anybody is susceptible to uh, that type of uh, activity against them. I mean, they need to wake up and go after these guys. Well, look, I call them the dirty tricks brigade. They're out there. I think they're not afraid to use the law as a weapon to harm people, even though they know that uh, what they're doing is wrong. And it's 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 a real challenge for each of us as as, uh, as American citizens. You know, I don't want to go off on my my horse on this one, but in this case, you know, this was about about some good people in, in Graham Spanier, Joe Paterno, Tim Curley, Gary Schultz. I, I know I know those people the best. You know, I, I, I had familiarity with, with Jerry through the second mile in a golf outing that I used to sponsor in Chester County, Pennsylvania. But that was about the extent of it. But I knew, I especially knew and know Tim Curley, uh, just, just, a, just a, a, a world-class human being. But I, I knew Joe, too. And to suggest that Joe Paterno would jeopardize the health and well-being of children in order to protect football is, is not to know who Joe Paterno was. And, and that, to me, is just is, is so wrong. And it's the, it's the narrative that, that needs to be corrected. Tim, Tim and Gary and Graham, good people. Um, you know, in this case, what they were told didn't rise to the level of criminality. They'd had an experience similar to 2001 back in 1998, and that was fully investigated, fully investigated. No charges were brought against Jerry in 1998. And then they're faced with the same thing in 2001, and, and they develop a plan, and, and Tim is the one who's supposed to execute the plan, and, and, and Tim made a decision uh, to, uh, to change the plan. You know, he went to Joe, he chatted with Joe, and I think the best advice Joe gave him was, hey, look, whatever you do, you have to tell everybody. You can't exclude any, anybody, and that includes Jerry. You know, you can't tell everybody but Jerry if this is the guy with the problem, if it's, you know, whatever the, the problem is you think he has. And so Tim does what any one of us would have done. Jerry wasn't an employee of the university at the time, and he went to Jack Rakovic, the same man who Graham, Graham Spanier's trial when asked what advice he gave Jerry when Jerry was in the shower was, well, going forward, you should wear swim trunks. It wasn't, hey, you shouldn't do this anymore. You should wear swim trunks. That was his, that was his sworn testimony. Yeah. Right? So, so, but, but again, my point, my point being is that these are good people. And they were faced with a challenge and they acted. They didn't act criminally and they didn't have a motivation. In fact, the jury found Graham not guilty on, on, on the conspiracy charge, which seems to have been misplaced in the media. Nobody ever talks about that. There was no conspiracy to conceal anything. In fact, in fact, if you think about it, if there would have been a conspiracy, they would have told McCreary, don't say anything to anybody. I mean, if you saw something 
as egregious as was represented in, in a presentment. Would you have stayed in employment at your institution had they not done something to correct it? I mean, I mean that's a fair question. Why do you say? Yes. Why? Well, because first off, what you saw amounted to horseplay, and that's what you said. And and let me add something else to this discussion because I, in the course of my work, I, I, I uh, my understanding has been that um, there were two investigations into into um, the uh, response by um, well, who was Doctor doc, the doctor who was Mike McCreary's father's boss. Um, I can't think of his name now. I'm drawing mm -hmm. a blank. But, yeah. but the night that Mike allegedly witnessed what he, he saw, he went home, he told his father, and he told uh, uh, the doctor, whose name now escapes me, and I apologize. And had the doctor thought this rose to the level of criminality, he had an obligation to report as a doctor. But he, but he didn't report it. And he was... Dranoff. Dranoff. Dranoff, that's right. Dr. Dranoff. Jonathan Dranoff. So... He didn't report it, and, I'm, and my understanding is that that the licensing folks in Pennsylvania investigated that not once but twice, and both times found that he, what he did was proper. So I go back to the notion that that these guys had an understanding that was done was criminal. Now we, we're living in 2020. Jerry went to trial in 2012, and he was he was found guilty based on the mores of society in 2012. Not not 2001 or any other prior time, but I I, I do believe his due process rights were, were violated, and I and I still hold it that, that Tim and Gary and Graham are, are not guilty of, of any crimes, and and uh, and it's just unfortunate that they, Tim and Gary particularly they they had to plea. You know, if you think about what happened in that case. Their lawyers advised them that they were better off taking the plea than taking a risk <clears throat> because you never know how a jury is going to act or react. And so they, they thought, OK, well, well, we'll take the misdemeanor because we're not going to do any time. Well, and then we had a judge and Judge Bucabella who decided to, that he was he was going to play politics, too. And he had already decided what his his uh, order would be for sentencing before he ever listened to anything anybody had to say in court about the defendants. So, you know, it's a, it's a, again, a political, politically charged issue. But when you don't have leadership as Penn State didn't back in 2011, when they got rid of Spanier and they got rid of Paterno, you're left, um, you're left with what we have today, which is still cleaning up that mess. And that's sad. It really is sad because Penn State as a, as a community, is just a group of wonderful, wonderful people. They really and truly are. It's, it's what makes us so darn special. Um, and I hope Jerry does get another day in court where he's represented by competent counsel who, who has an opportunity to prepare fully. I think we know a lot more today than we did in 2012, and I think that would be an added advantage in the case for, for his defense. Right. Well, Anthony, having... Uh having investigated this case for the federal government, um, I can uh, certainly uh, echo that that uh, Dr. Spanier and uh, Gary Schultz and uh, Tim Curley had no uh, no involvement whatsoever, any criminal activity whatsoever. And further that uh, Dr. Spanier's uh, 
uh, due process rights were uh, completely violated. Um, yeah. And right now, right now we're in a position where, inter interestingly enough, I, I just want to bring this up. You've got uh, Dr. Spaniers, uh, you know, as as you know, as mo most people know, his misdemeanor misdemeanor conviction was uh, overturned by the federal court. Um, as it should have been due to uh, a variety of reasons, but you know, due process is also the significant issue that you've talked about before. But right now, um, the attorney general's office, you know, and Josh Shapiro in his effort to uh, protect a uh, political vendetta and save face personally, you know, uh, appeals that that federal court decision. And now it's in Philadelphia in front of the federal court and people should be aware of the fact that um, one of the judges on the three panel, one of the judges is uh, Mike Fisher, yeah, former, former attorney general, who just so happens to have very close connections with Tom Corbett. Yeah. So, uh, you know, not, not only, you know, not only do I have close uh, associations with her really a big deal, but, uh, you know, I mean, just as an example, uh, Fisher's uh, spokesperson, Harley, um, goes back and forth between the two, between Corbett and uh, Fisher. Yeah, Harley Harley was a spokesperson for Corbett. Right. Mm -hmm. And subsequently for Fisher. Yep. Well, politics at work here. Well, you know, I, I think uh, all, all three of us, uh, well, uh, all four of us, uh, Ralph and... Uh, myself and uh, Tom, you know, uh, we want to do everything we can to expose what's going on, the, the criminal conspiracy that has taken place that brought this to where it's at right now. There's a lot of people that need to be criminally prosecuted. The big picture is here, it's a, it's a conspiracy and from the get-go. Yeah, well, again, I, I'm, I don't know, in terms of the Board of Trustees, I'd go so far has to say initially there was a quote-unquote conspiracy, at least not on the part of the majority of the board. Uh, I, I think, frankly, most of them had absolutely no knowledge or understanding. You know, none of them seem to have any recollection of reading the March 2011 story that Sarah Ganim did about, about the grand jury and Jerry Sandusky, which, you know, if you believe, it shows you how out of touch these people were and apparently there was only one trustee who ever inquired of Dr. Spanier with respect to what was happening, and that was a guy named Dave Jones. The rest of them appear to have been very quiet on the matter. And you know, again, I, I just think that that's how the Penn State has operated for so many years. Now, what they did or how they handled it when they when they were presented with the challenge is a whole different story. And then what they did with Louis Free, again, a whole different story. Um, I, I will tell you this, it is rather curious to me that the only two bits of information you know, ever ever seem to get to the full board from the investigation uh, pertain not the smear they did against me. And then, of course, the email leak and, and, and Keith Mosser's uh, disclosure to, um, <coughs> to the AP that he thought that they... they were involved in some kind of cover-up. Uh, I really doubt that the vast majority of the board was in the know 
certainly the committee that was created this task force, they didn't convene and have conversations or discussions. That was more for show than anything else. I think um, it's safe to say that uh, that the people who were who were in charge were were Ken Frazier, uh, Ron Tamales, who's then the Secretary of Education. They co-chaired that committee, and then you had Karen Peets and and um, and Keith Mosser as the chair and vice chair of the board, and maybe a couple of others. But uh, you know, as far as Freeze work and his investigation were concerned. Uh, that's a whole different story. And again, I mean, when, you, when you look at the big picture, and you've got right now, you have a chairman that has a, you know, criminal history that he doesn't really want to, you know, uh, acknowledge. But when you go back and you look at some of the, uh, I mean, people have sent me photographs of uh, members of the larger part of the. Uh, Board of Trustee sleeping at the meetings. I mean, how can you how can you have any faith in that? I mean, they're not they're so disengaged that uh, you know they're taking a nap during it. I mean, it's insane. Well, look, um, <laughs> I'd be lying to you if I told you that, that more often than not, folks are on the phone during the board meetings. At least they were. Now the board meetings today are run differently. Uh, we used to actually discuss any and every item that was brought before the board for the for a vote today what they've done in order to expedite the board meetings is to essentially have one vote on all these items and if you think about it you know these meetings are, are concluded in an hour and a half and you're talking about managing an institution that's got about an eight billion dollar operating budget i mean it, it really is mind-boggling you're doing all the work as a trustee essentially in five meetings the course of the year there's just there's no sense of of, of uh, fulfilling their fiduciary duty. You know they're going to go along and get along because they don't want to jeopardize the seat on the board. The only ones who are ever at risk on that board are the members of the, the, the that are elected by the alumni because every three years the, the alumni get to decide whether you're going to stay if you seek re-election. You know there was no guarantee I'd get elected to the board after taking off two years. I finished third. Jay Paterno and Alice Pope wanted to, and I finished behind them. Um, clearly, there are people who, who don't agree with my my point of view or my approach, and that's their right. It's a, it's a democratic process that we should all be happy we have. But the rest of them, they're not elected democratically. I don't care what they argue. You know, I, I would I would have this discussion with a guy named Rick Dandria, who's a trustee for business and industry, and he would say, well, you know, you're lucky if you have three, four percent of the alumni who are eligible who actually vote. And my response to be would be that, yeah, but you're elected by five people. Yeah, I mean, right. You know, so the reality yeah. here is, even if I'm only elected by eleven thousand or twelve thousand people, that's eleven thousand, twelve thousand people more than you. Yeah. So, I think if we want to fix this university going forward, we have to we have to change the governance of the institution, and that means change the board and its composition. If we really want to, you know, the Auditor General, D. Pascal, he, he issued a report, he made the same suggestion, his predecessor, Jack Wagner. But if you listen to the members of the Penn State Board discuss those recommendations, they'll say, well, they're all politically motivated. They're all politically motivated. Everything's politically motivated. So, you know, I, all, the other thing I can do is, is I can be prepared, do my homework, 
and then be willing to speak to those people who are willing to share the information. I'm sure I will be chided for having had this discussion with you today. No question about it, but so be it. You know, I didn't violate any court order. I didn't share anything that, that I haven't shared before publicly. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, it's, I think, an, an obligation on the part of, of board members to be independent, even though in their expectations of membership on that board, you're not supposed to speak out. Once you voted, you voted. They don't really want you to vote against whatever the majority wants to do. They'd rather you disagree privately, air your difference, and then go along with them publicly so that there are no disagreements publicly. That's how they operate. They think that's good governance. I disagree. Anthony, so you made it clear that, you know, uh, it's sort of like banging your head against the wall the first time around, that the board just wants to get, quote unquote, get past this. And, uh, you know, the, you've outlined not only the monetary cost, but the human cost of what's transpired here. Going into Act Two, is there any reason to believe the script can be rewritten here? Well, I think much will depend on what happens in Graham's case and, and Jerry's case. You know, it's all about getting information into the public sphere. Mm-hmm. Spanier prevails, and I think that uh, then he has an opportunity to pursue uh, his action against Free and, and the university. Yeah. <laughs> that would obviously have an impact. Um, and then, of course, if Jerry were to be granted another trial, that potentially would have an impact. Of course, the university doesn't want either of those to happen because they don't want to drudge up uh, old news. But you know, again, I, I, I'm in favor of, of us sharing the truth or knowing the truth. But as Ken Frazier liked to say, it's not what you think, it's what you can prove. So you got to be able to prove whatever position is you, you're, you're taking. And they're, they're just not going to be interested in, in listening to other points of view because as far as they're concerned, the, uh, the court of public opinion has already decided this one and let's just move on. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that some good people are now collateral damage. I think that's sad, but true. At the end of the day that we, when it comes to Penn State, you know, it's a microcosm of, of some other issues we face, but the issue of due process is an issue that should concern each and every one of us. Exactly. You were saying that, uh, you know, the board of trustees, you know, the larger part of the board, part of the board of trustees uh, considers it to be old news. I, I think a lot of people would take, take issue with that, particularly because of the, uh, uh, the activities that were, you know, surfaced as a result of the uh, whole episode between, uh, you know, criminal acts on the part of the prosecutors, the prosecutorial misconduct, you know, witness intimidation. And now, you know, now, as as you probably know, there's also uh, a tainted juror. Yeah. You know? Well, I didn't I didn't realize that before. I've since read that. And one of you wrote something about that. And I um and I am fascinated by the fact that there was a juror who, who um, uh, may have misrepresented some things during her uh, her interview to become a juror. I mean, that in itself is a major yeah. major problem. Well, I, I I've always wondered how Cleland could disallow or, or deny 
the request made by Amendola for an extension of time because he had just been dumped on by the OAG with all those files. I, I, I was, I've always been surprised by the notion that, that Cleland, what effectively is an ex parte communication with the Office of the Attorney General, um, you just you do wonder how this came to pass the way that it did. Right. I mean, you, you do wonder. Well, I mean, you know, now it's new news in the sense that you have a uh, <laughs> a, uh, a former uh, bureau agent who who uh, uh, detailed and documented uh, criminal acts on the part of the uh, Pennsylvania Attorney General's office. I, that's new. I mean, and that's a major problem. That's for that's a major problem for everybody uh, involved in this in the uh, alleged prosecution of this case. Well, I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, how many people have a detailed diary of criminal acts? I mean, people should look at that. One has to ask: Was was Louis Free duly authorized? deputized to receive any information from the office of the attorney general during his investigation the answer is a uh, well Big no. i don't believe he was i don't know for a fact but but if if he wasn't and he was getting that information during the the, the course of the investigation then then it's a problem it's a big problem well anthony i happen to have asked louis free that question uh was he authorized in fact to share grand jury secrets as a private citizen when he was doing his free report on Penn State, and he declined to answer that question. <laughs> well, I guess then I know the answer to that question. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. And, and, that, and that speaks volumes. And that also yeah. was suggestive to me. That means clearly he was getting information that he wasn't supposed to have. Right. And, and, and so, you know, as a board, as a member of the Penn State Board of Trustees during the course of... Uh, during a six-year period where, where the report has come under great scrutiny, I think we have a duty as a board to um, to seek recompense from Louis Free for the 8.3 million. Now, absolutely. You 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 have to remember that the agreement was signed with Free, provided for an indemnification. But. My understanding is that if if what Free did was was uh, intentional, that he knowingly misrepresented something, that 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 indemnification can go by the wayside. So, you know, I don't expect the university to have the strength of character to pursue that, because I think it would it, it could potentially embarrass too many people, both current and, and former members of the board and and administration. But that would be the, the right approach to take. That's why I think that resolution is is appropriate. I think we need to go on the record. The university's position has been, the Board of Trustees' position has been that we never, ever voted on the free report. We didn't accept it. But in fact, we did. You know, ours, our acceptance was tacit in many respects, but it was very, very direct in the, in the uh, NCAA uh, decree. Right. The NCAA, in its decree, said that they relied upon the free investigation as the basis of their investigation. I mean, it says it's in black and white, and Penn State accepted that. So 
we did accept it. And, and, it's, and it's really a shame, it's, it's really sad that the chairman of the board, Karen Peets, had no knowledge, no prior knowledge that that would be the case. But that speaks to her lack of engagement too. So let's remember, Karen Peets was president of BNY Mellon at the time when she had her hands full. And, and let me give you a little history too here about, about Chairman Peets and Vice Chair Mosser. So John Surma was the vice chair of the board in 2011. The chair of the board was Steve Garbin. Now Garbin, right. Garbin was, was going to leave the chair and naturally that would mean Surma would, would ascend to the chair the next year. But because of, of what happened in November of 2011, Surma decided he didn't want any part of it. Now, unfortunately and sadly, he, he, he and others on that board got death threats. You know, we had board meetings where, where we had protection for people. And that, that was really sad. Should never happen, but it did. And Surma didn't want anything to do with, uh, with uh, serving as uh, chair of the board. So that meant we had to find a new chair. Well, <clears throat> Massa had already decided he wanted to be vice chair. And they, they, they asked Massa if he was interested in chair. And he said, no, I'm not, I'm not ready to be chair, and especially not now. So, so they recruited Karen Peets. And Karen Peets was ill-prepared to be chair of the board. But she became chair of the board. I think they used her. But she became the chair of the board. Keith Mosser was her second in command. I met with Pete's and Mosser January of 2012, prior to Joe Paterno's death. The Pence, at the Nittany Lion Inn, we met for a cup of coffee one morning. And at that morning, I walked in and, and there was uh, a member of Penn State's communications team at a table and then in walked Lanny Davis. <laughs> And, and I walked over and introduced myself and, and Lanny Davis looked at me and he said, good luck. That was, that was classic. But I, I, I sat with, with Pete's and Mosser and I gave them a simple piece of advice. I said, listen, if you do anything, you need to go to Joe Paterno, apologize for the way this was handled. And I can assure you, he will find a magnanimous way to accept your apology and you'll walk out arm in arm, all will be forgiven and the Penn State community can move on. And their response, her response, not Keith, because Keith, Keith was like a deer in the headlights initially. Although I would say Keith, Keith Monster is a very, very bright guy. Uh, but in the case of, of uh, Karen Peach, she looked at me, she said, well, I don't know if we can do that. You know, we, we, we have the, the political correctness issue, and then we still have this free investigation. What if free comes out and, and, and says that uh, Paterno was responsible for something? Now, I should have known then, right? And so yeah. a couple weeks later, Joe dies, and they never got that chance. And so, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about a woman who was thrown into it. Um, oftentimes, I mean, the night we, we met to talk about the consent decree, Karen Peets called in from London because she was at the Olympics, 2012. She wasn't even present for the meeting. Mosser led the meeting from, from the front of the room. We were at the Penn Stater. And, and uh, Joel Myers actually found a, um, 
uh, a, a, uh, a bylaw that, that they didn't follow. And so we were able to table a vote on the consent decree. We never did ultimately vote on the consent decree. But she didn't know that that was part of the consent decree. And none of us knew that the executive committee had had a call with, with uh, Erickson. And oh, by the way, at that meeting that night, uh, Joe, Joe Myers requested a legal opinion. Did the, the, the university president have the authority to enter into the consent decree? We got, we got a letter from Frank Guardanino, who now is an employee of the university. He was associate general counsel. Now he's in the president's office. But Frank was, was then our outside counsel at Reed Smith. And we got a letter from him after the fact, after it was signed, which is highly, again, unusual. Typically, before you enter into something like this, you want to make sure you've asked your legal people to give you an opinion. We didn't have an opinion prior to the execution of the consent decree. Board never, saw, never, never had an opportunity to discuss it prior to its execution. Should never have agreed to that consent decree. And then when it was repealed, because the NCAA was feeling the pressure from the Corman lawsuit and the paternal lawsuit, it was repealed. I was pressing for it to be repealed ab initio as if it never existed, because I always believed they didn't have the legal authority to act. But they weren't interested in that. They were going to sign a new consent decree, and they would give back the victories, and they'd allow us to participate in the bowl games and give back our scholarships. And Ken Frazier that, that day came to Al Lord and I and asked if we could agree publicly, you know, if we would, we wouldn't vote against this new agreement, it would help. And Al and I had been working with, um, with Rob McCord of all people, you know, he, he was the, uh, treasury, tr the treasurer of the state who ended up going to jail and Corman in the Corman action and um, McCord controlled that action until he ended up with legal problems. And we always believed that they were going to actually press and go to trial. But instead, uh, Dr. Barron asked if, uh, if uh, uh, Corman would settle that dispute with the NCAA because he didn't want to have to continue to deal with it. And in exchange for settling it, the university would pay Corman's legal fees, which turned out to be, you know, about a million and a half dollars. Now, you'll never read or see that anywhere. I mean, you might read about it because there was a story or two, but they didn't want to talk about it much. So, you know, and Jake and Jake worried that that if he won the case, it would be appealed, it would be tied up. And what if he lost the appeal? He thought it better to have a bird in the hand. So we'd settle the case. So, you know, that's how we ended up where we are today. And, and again, you know, I, I look back at, at the decisions that were made and it all emanates from November 2011, obviously, but, but it, was, it was our failure as an institution to stand up and, and defend ourselves. Instead, we immediately accepted responsibility, not knowing whether or not we were responsible. And not much more to be said, is there? Oh, boy. Yeah. It's... Uh... It, you know, people really need to realize what what occurred there. I think uh, ponderance of uh, everybody that was involved in this needs to, you know, be removed from their current positions. Yeah, well, or find or find themselves in a, uh, you know, 
in a jail. Well, you know, the, you're never going to have people leaving the border acknowledging they made any kind of mistakes. Uh, it's just well, not the beast. Anthony, uh, I mean, you know, this, uh, this is, I, w I would want to ask this question, obviously, that, you know, based on, we know that, that you want to uh, set the record straight in regard to all of this, basically. Yeah. And we're 150% behind everything you're doing. Obviously, everybody on this call um, wants to see justice done in, in <laughs> numerous levels of this entire disastrous case. But people that are listening that, you know, have a sense of right or wrong, what can they do to help you? Well, I, I think the best thing they can do is just to continue to vocalize the support. You know, there, there's nothing you can do beyond vocalizing support. A lot of folks would, would pat me on the ass and say, go get them, good job. But then they keep their mouth shut. And, I, and I'm talking specifically to some people in the state college area, prominent people who, if they spoke out, could make a difference. But because, right. because they feed at the trough of Penn State, they're afraid. So instead, I get a pat on the ass and say, keep going. Good job. We're with you. But then you don't hear another word from them because they like to ride the fence. You know, I, and, that, and I've always been troubled by people who come over to me and say, oh, you know, I, 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 know, I knew Joe. Joe's a good guy. And, and, uh, and then they don't do a thing. It really it takes people to speak out and have the courage of their conviction. This is an uncomfortable topic. You bring up Jerry Sandusky and 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 uh, you're a pariah, right? You're you're bad. If you listen to Frank Fina's counsel during his disciplinary matter, they they kept referring to Jerry as the you know the the, the worst pedophile in the history of the United States or something along those lines. Well, yeah, but uh, yeah, but the guy that you're talking about is you know on the hook for witness intimidation now. So well, well, I get it. But what I'm saying is that that of course the media when they write their stories, they they're always saying the same thing. So anytime you take a position contrary to that position, you're you're suspect to a lot of scrutiny. True. Yes, true. And and that that can be uncomfortable. Very, very uncomfortable. You know, I'm look, when I got involved in this back in 2011, I can promise you not everybody my family was excited about the notion. <laughs> right. Be be because they, they knew there was exposure. Now, I didn't know the extent to which people would go to dirty tricks until they, they, they tried to smear me in the Inquirer. That, that, to me, was difficult for no other reason than because it was so untrue and, and because I guess I was unprepared. Um, now, I, I get it. You know, no trick is too low and... And frankly, politics is an ugly business, and that's what we're playing here. This is about politics. Yeah. So you you, you you have to be ready to deal with whatever comes, and not be surprised at at how people react or respond. Uh, you know, I I don't I I don't have any issue with people who don't agree with me. I I will tell you, I've received lots of communications over the years, not always from people who agree with me. But I'm always respectful, and I actually oftentimes 
will offer them my cell number so we can have a, a civil conversation. And many of them will take me up on it and we'll have a conversation. And then they'll have a whole different level of understanding of who I am and, and what I'm doing. And me of them. That That's how you have discourse. Right. It's, it's I not, think, I, you know, a lot with this, uh, you know, you mentioned that, you know, people will um, support you and then and then publicly ride the fence. Yeah. And you've got a circumstance here where, I mean, up, up to date, you know, with current events, you've got a lot of people that <clears throat> you have a giant silent majority that yeah. uh, um, and in in the in the uh, Penn State case, you also have a giant silent majority, as as we've all seen through what we've done. Um, but, you know, it, 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 complacency is going to kill us. Look, look, you know, look, you, 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 when you mention the Penn State community, you have to remember Center County, it's the, it's the number one employer, right? So right. these people fear for their jobs. If they speak out or speak up, they were threatened. If they didn't get interviewed, then they could lose their jobs. It, it, and they weren't allowed to bring lawyers to those interviews. And there was no no documentation other than by freeze people and they didn't share them with the interviewee after the interview. So yeah, it, there, was, there, there was no memorialization in the form of, of a video or an audio. So you didn't know what was being said or what was being written based on what you said. I mean, it's, it's really scary if you're an employee at Penn State and they tell you you have to be interviewed by freeze people. And if you don't, you'd lose your job. I could tell you the story. Yeah, there's something significantly wrong with that. Well, of course there, there is. I mean, yeah. it's, it's the fear-mongering that goes on. Fear and greed, fear and greed drive human nature. Fear-mongering. They, they, they intentionally created that atmosphere. Intentionally, because in Free's case, as, as it turns out, based on people who were interviewed or spoke with me, he wasn't interested in, in Jerry Sandusky. He was interested in the power structure. Right. Because he had a motivation, it seems. Right? So right. We, we now know that, but at the end of the, of, during the, 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 the period of the supposed investigation, uh, n nobody really understood. All we know is there were a lot of people conducting many, many interviews. You know, Free himself said he interviewed, like, they interviewed over 400 some people, and many of them multiple times. So a great number of interviews were conducted. Great number of interviews were conducted. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, what, what I find interesting is the people that I interviewed in uh, pursuit of the uh, federal investigation, very few of them that were pertinent, particularly pertinent and relevant to this investigation, very few of those were ever contacted by free. Yep. Well, um, well, the ones I, that I, I would say ahead. this: all the trustees were contacted. I mean, that, that's a fact. They were all all contacted based on you know what people have shared with me. Uh, I actually, as a trustee elect, was contacted. I refused to an interview because I knew where it was going. Yeah. Seriously, I mean, why was I going to waste my time or university money? Because they, they already had a preconceived notion. So, 
at the end, I wasn't going to do it. But, you know, some of the people, the, uh, the attorney general's office wouldn't allow to be interviewed. For obvious reasons now. I mean, think about it. You know, your primary yeah. players in this case weren't, in, weren't interviewed. How can, you, how can you reach any conclusions? How well, can you, can certainly, you, can certainly, you can certainly reach predetermined conclusions. How can you assign any motivation? How do you know what, what someone's motives are? Intent is really hard to prove. You know, the best thing you can do is look at prior actions. And they, and they couldn't. They were, they were very limited. So right? it's, just, it's really, really sad to see that what I thought was our system of justice really was, is more a, a system of law. And there really isn't, quote unquote, justice. No. It's just really, really sad. It, well, we, we're, we're designed to be country of laws so that we can have civilization. And instead, uh, you, you have people running around whose only objective it is to win at all costs. And, and, um, and yeah. end up with some good people being harmed in the process, and they don't care. And apparently Penn State didn't care that Good people like Graham Spanier, Tim Curley, Gary Schultz, Joe Paterno were uh, were collateral damage because they were going to move on. They were done. Move on. We are yeah. moving on, and we don't want to talk about this anymore. And if you bring it up, we're going to give you the evil eye. We're going to marginalize you as a trustee. We're going to we're going to take away any responsibility we might have given you. Well, I mean, you know, the the big picture is we cannot. Uh... You know, we, we can't move away from uh, on from a uh, series of criminal uh, acts that are <laughs> extremely well documented in a uh, detailed diary. Let uh, me tell you that. Someone someone once told me that there is no statute of limitation on the truth. So, yeah, exactly. There you go. I'm going to stick um, to that. Anthony, we really appreciate you taking the time to, to be with us um, today. We'd like to have you on again before you take your uh, seat, actually, if you have time. Well, that'd be tomorrow. Um, abs absolutely. Um, and we'd like to do that again if, if we could tomorrow, maybe. Uh, I know that there's a couple more questions we have. Sure. Um, right. Anthony, thank, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks, uh, Anthony. Appreciate thank all you. your time. Thank you.